This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So someday I want to write a book, and I have a working title that goes something like this, Conversations with Humans, um, because I have a lot of conversations with human beings. And for like 30 years, I've been doing this thing that I, didn't, I wasn't even conscious of it, but I just do it. And sometimes it's a little overbearing and, uh, and annoying, but I meet somebody that I've never met before, and I instantly think, oh, this person is going to be interesting. This person is going to be fascinating because they're made in the image of God, and they're somebody for whom Christ has died, and I know that already. So they're going to have, like, amazing stories. And so I just start the conversation, and I ask a question, and then I listen, and then I ask a question, and I listen, and I ask a question, and I listen, etc. repeat. And the stories that come out, which usually do, are sometimes stories of gratitude or grit or grace. But i got to be honest, if I just kind of do a quick survey of all of these conversations, the predominant genre of stories is what I would call the groaning story, a story of loss, a story of grief, a story of, of failure, a story of death, an untimely death, or something that just went wrong. Everybody has these stories. So I'm in Minneapolis. I'm talking to my Uber driver. He tells me, I ask him questions. So I find out he's from Somalia, and he's driving this Uber because he can't get a job in IT, and he's living with his mom because his parents are divorced. And he has married his fourth cousin, who's in Somalia and hoping to get to Kenya so she can get to the United States. I'm like, wow, that's a lot of suffering. Or my neighbor's standing on my front patio. And he's telling me about his only sibling, a twin brother who died 20 years ago, and other things in his life and his family that are really, really painful. And I really like this guy. So it just, it, it really hurts. Or I'm on Amtrak getting ready to ride from Minneapolis back to Chicago, and I'm talking to a guy on the train, a retired naval officer, and, and I said, what brought you to Minnesota? He said, well, my mother is, has dementia, and I'm trying to take care of her, and the other siblings are not very helpful, so I have to come from Virginia and do this. You see the stories of groaning. Everybody has one, rich or poor. It doesn't matter what your station in life is. Sometimes the poor just wear it on their sleeve. They're so used to it, they don't even know it's a groaning story. And sometimes the wealthy think that we, well, I'll put myself in that category compared to the rest of the world, we think that we can avoid this. We can build a moat around our life. We can just be religious, or we can be nice, or we can be rich, or whatever. But the groaning breaks through, doesn't it? Did you hear our scripture passage in Romans chapter 8, this beautiful, intellectually deep and a very emotional little text of scripture? Just read a snippet of it, verses 22 and 23, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the church, groan inwardly. It's a lot of groaning going on. Sometimes it's like a piercing, sharp pain. A child with an addiction. Another mass shooting. You, are you kidding? Another one? Another war. Sometimes it's like a dull ache. It's like the dinner guest, the annoying dinner guest who doesn't know when to leave and it just kind of loiters around. It's, it's the dream job that you love until it starts sucking the life out of you. It's the people that were once friends, like you shared a table with them, you shared meals with them. They, they were like your beloved ones, 
And, and now you're separated. There's a rift or there's a misunderstanding, and, and you act like you're enemies towards each other. Does anybody not have a groaning story here? I, I would imagine we do. And so my question this morning is, what does God say? What does God say to groaning people, a groaning creation? Does he have a word? Well, let's find out, okay? I'll let you decide by the time we get done with this. So turn with me to page 944 to this beautiful, rich, deep passage. And I have a four-point outline. So the first point is hope in our groaning. The second point is the groaning creation. The third point is the groaning church. And the fourth point is hope in our groaning. And Steve, thank you. He caught that. So the first and the fourth point are the same. And you may wonder, why? Thank you, Steve. Um, so, <laughs> you're good, man. Okay, thanks. So, because that's the way the text is written. So, I'm just trying to follow Paul's logic here, his, his outline, the way that the text has been delivered in the power of the Holy Spirit to the church. And so, it's like it begins in hope in verse 18, and it ends in hope in verses 24 and 25. And as I was thinking about this text, I'd like to, I'd like to see the the arms of God, just two arms, metaphorically, but wrapped around all of our human groaning in this text. So it's just enwrapped in God's comfort and consolation. So let's look at the hope in our groaning, part one, in verse 18. And it says, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, I just want to pause at that word consider because that, that's a Greek word that means to think something logically through to its conclusion. So Paul is just saying, you know, I, I didn't just accept this on faith, the way people think about faith. Like if faith is against thinking. Faith is against reason. He said, I've thought about this. The life of the mind and the life of the heart are, are one. They're integrated in the Christian life. And, and we can be thinking people. Like, think this through. And I think Paul is saying, I want you to consider this too. Think it through for yourself. Think it through. What is your worldview? What, what makes sense to you? What makes the most sense out of the world that we're experiencing? So think about it. So he's saying, and he says, take the suffering of this present time. Take the suffering of this present time and like put it, put a, a, a weight. It's all got weight. It's heavy. Put it on a scale, one side of a scale. So, so take all the trauma, the sickness, the relationships that you've lost, the hurt, the ache for intimacy, the lonely nights, the things that make you worry, the things that make you weep. But, but don't just take ours. Let's, let's go bigger. Let's take the sufferings of the poor, those who have been displaced by war or famine or persecution, the, those who have been trafficked, those who have been exploited, those who are indentured servants, those who are enslaved, those who have been persecuted for them through their faith. Put it all on one side of the scale. Dad, how heavy is that? And then this text tells us something that if it's not true, it is cruel. But if it is true, it's the most amazing news in the world. So the Bible text tells us that 
All of those things are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And as we're going to see, is already being revealed to us, but it's going to be revealed at an even deeper level. It's like this curtain is going to open. This curtain is going to open, or a door is going to open, or multiple doors are going to open, just boom, 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 like think of like 20 doors all open at the same time. And you enter a new creation that King Messiah Jesus is bringing into existence. The restoration of all things, the tender hand of Jesus wiping away every tear, the beauty, the hugging, the dancing, the feasting, the rejoicing. So earlier in Romans, we, we saw justification by faith, that when we place our faith in Jesus, the one who died for us and redeemed us by his blood, we enter into a new relationship with the living God, and we are declared not guilty, forgiven, adopted as sons and daughters. And that is precious, and that is beautiful. But here we find out that that door we walk through, justification by faith, it just opens up to this vista, this, this glory that we never thought possible. It's a whole new creation. Everything is transformed. That's where we're headed. But we're not there yet, right? We don't live there yet. We get glimpses of it, but we're not there. And so we have the groaning creation. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And then five times Paul uses the word the creation. Well, four times the creation, a fifth time the whole creation. So what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about everything. Human life, animal life, plant life, weather systems, tsunamis and earthquakes, and thunderstorms, and daisies, and apple trees, and beagles, and mosquitoes. He's talking about everything. Rock formations, and it's lovely, and it's awe-inspiring. And like Psalm 139 says about us, it's fearfully and wonderfully made. And yet, in this text, what St. Paul is primarily focusing on, he's bringing us back to Genesis chapter 3. And this little passage, this little passage is just chock full of Old Testament imagery and, and understanding. And so he's bringing us back to Genesis chapter 3, and he's saying, yeah, it's beautiful, and it was very good, but now it's, there's something off. There's something wrong. So it's like a train that's off track. It's, just, it's like an animal that's wounded. And so he uses these two jarring phrases in verse 20. It's been subjected to futility, which implies an actor in that. Somebody did this. Who, who subjected it to futility? He doesn't say, but it's probably God. Probably God that subjected it to futility. And, and we'll find out why in just a minute. But then it's also in bondage to corruption. So there's something futile. There's something corrupt in the very system of creation. Or that, that, that's the way it's come, the way it is, exists now, not the way it was originally created. It, it's out of whack. A few weeks ago, I was in my, my new back patio, just enjoying my patio, enjoying a morning, watching the sunrise, and reading the Psalms. And I look over under my hammock, that wonderful image of advanced civilization, the hammock. And there, under the, under the, the hammock, is a raccoon, and it's lying on his side, and it's twitching. In the first sermon I demonstrated, but I won't demonstrate. It was just painful to watch. 
and it's obviously dying. And one thing led to another. I had to kill it and bury it. And the raccoon is looking at me with, like, eyes, because it has eyes. And it's going, dude, really? Come on. Do you have to do this? And I'm like, yeah, I have to. That is an example of subjection to futility. Now, some people, some thinkers like Charles Darwin, the evolutionist guy, he would look at the, he would look at the, the sort of the brokenness of creation and say, wow, you can't possibly believe in a good, benevolent God who has created this universe. It's all just random. There's just too much suffering. There's animal suffering. Why do animals suffer? That just doesn't make sense. And, and the Christian would say, yeah. We agree on that point. We actually agree that it's really wrong. It's horrible. There's something really wrong there. Nature is cruel. It can be violent. It can be unsafe. But we've been thinking about this for 2,000 years, Charles. You know, we've been thinking about this a long time. Even back before, the Jewish people have been thinking about this. And the very good creation, you're right, it's become ruptured. It's become wounded by the fall. But here's the important thing. A Christian or a Jew as well would say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's something wrong. It's abnormal. But there was a normal. And there's going to be a normal again. But there's not now. So when humanity fell in Genesis 3, we, the head, the ruler, the leaders, the king and queen of creation. When we fell and rebelled against God, it was like all interconnected and all of creation fell with it and was under the just judgment of God. But remember, in hope that God is going to put this back together again. So creation is fallen. It's groaning. And there's flashes of hope in here, which we'll get to in just a few minutes. But third, there's the groaning church. I remember when I first made a decision to follow Jesus when I was 16 years old, or Jesus made a decision to choose me, or both, or whatever, however that worked, and then I thought, wow, this is great. I'm going to be just, everything's going to be great. Like, I'm going to be happy all the time, and I'm going to be joyful all the time, and I won't be groaning anymore. Well, there is a sense in which the church groans more, not less, than the rest of the world. Why is that? Because we know the very good of creation. We know the eternal weight of glory that's coming. But we're in the middle, and sometimes it just really hurts. So Paul says in verse 23, he says, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, so the, the first part of the harvest, and he's saying that that is the Holy Spirit. And back in chapter 5, he said that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the, through the Spirit that has been given to us. So we have that. We have that, and it's precious, but it doesn't stop us from groaning. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And again, that, in a way, intensifies the groaning. Because we know our bodies are going to be redeemed. So why did Paul say, of all the things he could have said about what's going to be amazing about the new creation, why did he say the redemption of our bodies? And I thought about that question for a long time. 
and I read a lot of commentaries, and there were absolutely no, no help at all. So I just thought, well, I'm going to take a stab at this based on our creed and based on our belief in the resurrection of the body. It's in our bodies that we bear the brunt of living in a fallen world, is it not? I mean, did you wake up this morning and say, you know, oh, my, my soul feels really hurts this morning. Probably not. It's in your body. We're connected. We're all connected, but it's in our as embodied people that we get the stomach flu. It's embodied people that struggle with dementia. It's embodied people that, that, that get bipolar disorder or that have addictions. And when you miss someone, when you want to be with someone, when you're in love with somebody, what, what do you long for? Do you long for them to say, don't worry, I'll be with you in spirit? Because what good does that do? Well, thanks. Okay, that means something, but, I mean, not, not, that's not the ultimate. What do you long for? You want to hug. You want to lay your head on somebody's shoulder. You want to look them in the eye. You want bodily presence. So when Jesus comes to set things right, when the eternal weight of glory tips the scales towards joy, it is our bodies that will be renewed, restored, raised. And we're not there yet, which is why we groan inwardly. Now, this is actually good news because that means that Jesus and his church are a place where we can bring our groaning. There's a uh, French painter, French artist at the turn of the 20th century, 1900s, named Georges Rouault, who, uh, if you come to my house, there's a large print of his, of, not an original, but uh, there's a large print of, of his um, walk to Emmaus. So in 1922, he uh, painted this painting titled, Who Doesn't Put On a Face? And uh, there's actually a story behind that painting. So uh, Rouault struggled with depression or some kind of mental health crisis early in his life. But when he was 34 years, and he was actually a devout Christian too. And when he was 34 years old, he had an experience that changed his life, like the Lord really reached him through this experience. And it's a really, actually sounds like a really sad experience, but it wasn't. So he was walking, out, he was outside walking one day, and he saw a circus caravan in the countryside and parked by the roadside. And there was an old clown sitting on a wooden crate mending a sparkling clown costume. And Rouault said it was just the jarring of the clown who's this image of happiness and just his social status as a poor vagabond who has no home, no community, just sort of wandering through life and a, a drifter. And Rouault, at the time when he had this epiphany, he wrote, I saw clearly that the clown was me, was us. We, in this sense, he said, we all wear a glittering costume. And underneath the costume and mask, there are tears of grief at the very heart of things. And that changed his life. You might think, well, 
that just sounds like, if I was depressed, that might make me more depressed. But it didn't because it hit him that the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the church of Jesus, that's where you can bring your groaning, where you can take off your costume and mask and just say, there are tears of grief inside me. So there is hope in our glory, in our, in our groaning. Let me come back. Point one, reprise. We've seen flashes of hope throughout this, which I've sort of skipped over at this point. For instance, verse 19 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So there's a really interesting Greek word there that waits. Um, the, the phrase there, eager longing, is actually a compound Greek word that this is a little technical, but it's really important. So it's, it's, it's a compound Greek word that in its form is only used in the New Testament. It's no, nowhere else is it used in Greek literature as far, as far as we can tell. So that means that what happened in Jesus was something so new, so radically new, that they had to invent a new word for it, rooted in the biblical story, but something new had come. So, and what, and that word literally means to think with an outstretched head is what, if you put all the compounds together, thinking with an outstretched head, like this. So I picture a kid at a parade, a little kid at a parade going, oh, what, what is that, a truck, is that a fire truck, is that dancers, what is it? So trying to see, stretching the head. And so what St. Paul is saying, that is our posture as Christians. Even in the midst of groaning, even in the midst of hurting, we're looking for something. And it's coming. And he says, what are we looking for in verse 19? For the revealing of the sons of God. What are we waiting for? What is creation waiting for? It's waiting for us. Waiting for God to do what he said he's going to do in us. To restore us to king and queen of creation status. And then creation will be raised up with us. I don't know. I just find that glorious. And then verse 22, another really powerful image that some of you can relate to much better than I can, the groanings of the pains of childbirth. And they're in the midst of the anguish, you know something's coming. A baby's coming. And that will make it all worth it. So verses 24 and 25, where Paul uses the word hope five times in these two little verses, for in this hope we were saved, now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Some of us want to deny the world's groaning, numb it, blunt it, minimize it, can drink too much, work too much, stay busy, never have silence in your life watch too much stuff, social media, whatever, but not have hope. And then some people face the world's groaning, like I'm going to face it right on, I'm going to face it head on, and I'm going to tackle it, I'm going to change the world, I'm going to make a difference. And because the suffering and the injustice and the brokenness is so deep, it crushes them. I've lived long enough to see that hundreds of times live long enough to see it happen to me. People who diagnose what's wrong, 
but they don't have hope. And they get exhausted and cynical and angry. Line 25 is, verse 25, this passage ends, we wait for it with patience. Like that kid at the parade. Like I'm hurting right now. This world's hurting right now. But it's coming. The Lord Jesus is not done. And then we become like people, the church becomes people like the living God who want to like, I just, Jesus, I just want to join you. I just want to join you wrapping my arms in some small way around this hurting world. I just want to stand with you and put my arms around this world as well. Listen for the groans of, of others. So the church lives together in such a way that we go to places of pain and dislocation and hurt, and we listen to the groaning. We listen for it. We're watching for it because we know it's there. And we don't have to, we can't fix it all. That's not our job. Only Jesus can do that. But in my little corner of the world, with and in and through Jesus, I want to be those arms too. But first, the church is the place where you bring your own groans to the Lord Jesus. And here's the thing. You're never alone in that. I just want to skip down to verse 27. Um, or actually verse 26. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Who's groaning? Creation? The church? The Holy Spirit's groaning. What? The Holy Spirit is groaning with groans too deep for words within us? What does our creed say? Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He knows groaning. He walks with us in our groanings. Here's a God at the Eucharistic table, a God who was betrayed. Jesus, the Son of the living God, was betrayed. His body was broken. His blood was spilled out for us and for our salvation. And not only that, not only does he walk with us, but he turns our groans into glory. Every groan will be turned into glory. And I just, as I was thinking about this, I just thought, how do you not fall in love with a God like that? How do you not open the door of your life to him? How do you not just give your whole life to serving and adoring him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.